0: KPCW News time is 807. You're listening to the local news hour. Let's find out what's in store for our weather today. On the phone, I have Thomas Keyboy with ABC Four. Good morning, Thomas.
1: Hey, good morning, Park City. It's actually Nate in for Thomas today uh, today and tomorrow. But uh, yeah, gorgeous weather in Park City today. Mostly sunshine to partly cloudy skies. 44 for the high. Plan on uh, increasing winds though through the rest of the week. In fact, uh, some big storms moving in over the weekend. Should have some drastic changes to temperatures and bring in a healthy amount of snow. So overnight lows near 32 uh, tonight into Friday morning. Plan on snow showers. It'll be fairly light in nature until until Saturday afternoon. So often on snow showers Friday 42 degrees should drop to 38 on Saturday for the high but then just teens for overnight lows Saturday night into Sunday as a cold front sweeps through and should bring uh, some healthy snow totals into Sunday. Wasatch or Park City area Wasatch back isn't necessarily under the winter storm watch that's been issued for the Wasatch Mountains south of I-80 about one to two feet of snow right now are in the forecast for some of those higher elevations uh, on the northwest aspects of the mountain areas so we're expecting several inches to accumulate in Park city saturday night into sunday as well we will have a few lingering showers on monday highs just near 30 degrees so below freezing temperatures sunday and monday we'll start to warm up a little bit tuesday uh, partly cloudy skies 35 for the high and then we could see another storm system by the middle of next week sometime throwing a chance of snow wednesday Uh, partly to mostly cloudy with highs near 38 as well.
0: So, Nate, for that Saturday night snow, uh, what kind of temperature are we looking at? Are we gonna get some nice dry powder, or is it gonna be the wet stuff? Uh,
1: It should start out as more of a wet snow and then change over to a really nice powdery snow with the cold air moving in behind it. Uh, One of the biggest issues this weekend, though, is gonna be the winds. We've got wind gusts as high as 55 miles an hour expected for uh, the Wasatch Backs. We have a lot of blowing and drifting snow uh, as well, so not gonna be ideal conditions unfortunately I think for skiing because even if it is powdery I think it'll be windblown and end up being more crusty and uh, unfortunately avalanche conditions are gonna be a concern then as well okay
0: thanks Nate and sorry I mistook you for Thomas that's all right (laughs) we'll see you tomorrow tomorrow. well let's find out what these interesting conditions coming up this weekend will mean for the backcountry and what things look like now on the phone I have drew with the Utah Avalanche Center
2: Hey, good morning. You know, we don't want to trip over uh, current conditions. You know, most of us, of course, have our eyes on the storm for tomorrow through Monday. Um, and certainly the avalanche danger is going to ramp up significantly over the weekend. Um, you know, we heard about all the strong winds, the heavy snowfall. Um, and, and again, certainly the danger will, will ramp up accordingly. But uh, a couple of things, you know, if you're heading in the backcountry today, a couple of things to be aware of. You know, we can't forget Tuesdays very strong winds out of the west northwest um led to a number of natural avalanches tuesday a couple pockets were triggered yesterday one skier cotton carried uh in a soft slab of wind drifted snow in wolverine cirque yesterday a bit of a wake-up call there um also there was one natural noted that caught my eye as well in parley's canyon um it's, it's what we call the parley's burn it's down canyon and and west of the summit park area there on the lambs canyon side of things it was low elevation it was 7200 feet east facing um, but obviously and very heavily wind drifted in there but it was up to two feet deep 150 feet wide Um, we have pictures on the on the website so i would say lingering wind slabs from tuesday Um, uh, and then developing um, wind slabs uh, from today's increasing southwest winds ahead of the the storm, so just lingering and developing uh, pockets of wind-drifted snow. Um, it'll be a, a bit of a uh, dance with the, with the cloud cover today for wet avalanche potential. Um, the, certainly, the temperatures rising to the mid 30s up high, the mid and upper 40s uh, down low support wet avalanches. But again, it's going to be a, a bit of a dance with the cloud cover. I think there will be enough sun. Um, to create issues with wet avalanches so those will be on east to south to west facing aspects cornices you know those large whales overhanging the ridgelines are also becoming large and unruly and will start to calve off naturally with winds and and strong solar and heating today so that's going to be an issue and um the last outlier and I, i would say this for the park city folks um particularly if you're heading around into snake creek um, mill canyon peak at knolls area or around into the provo area world um, we did have an interesting facet crust um layer that was buried on valentine's day that has been sort of problematic up through about uh through about the weekend um tests and observations support that healing but it's still an outlier it should be on your radar and that that's been um, a problem on east and southeast facing slopes at the mid and upper elevations. Low likelihood, uh, but it'll, it'll ruin your day if you get caught up in, in one of those. And a little bit of analysis and testing of the, of the snowpack is warranted if you're heading into that terrain today. But overall, areas of moderate danger um, across all aspects and elevations for a variety of a grab bag of avalanche problems today. And again, stay tuned for a ramp up with the avalanche potential over the weekend.
0: Okay, thanks
2: Drew. Yep, thanks so much. Let's do a little bit of local news. The annual omnibus
0: liquor bill is expected to pass before the end of the legislative session tomorrow. KPCW's Christine Weller reports that it aims to balance the need for more liquor licenses with
3: safety. Some Utahns feel there's a liquor license shortage in the state. The Department of Alcoholic Beverage Services only issues licenses to bars and restaurants ready to open since there are a limited amount. Business owners say this can be a burden, as they must invest in a restaurant or bar without the guarantee of a license. However, there are also many Utahns who don't want to see more licenses, fearing that could increase DUIs. Director Tiffany Clayson says that's why lawmakers have been working to balance the need for more licenses with safety in this year's liquor bill, HB 548.
4: They've worked so hard to try to balance economic development, small business needs. With public safety and health goals and needs, because we all want to continue to enjoy having low DUI rates. We want to continue to enjoy having low underage drinking rates and statistics.
3: The bill would increase the number of liquor licenses available over seven years. Starting in fiscal year 2025, the bill would allow one liquor license for every 9,778 residents, down from 10,200. That number will continue to go down until 2031, when there will be a liquor license for every 7,246 residents.
4: We still have probably the least density in the country, but also for those folks who are wanting to see more licenses open up, this definitely brings us
3: closer. The bill would also increase in the markup on wine and spirits from 88% to 88.5%. That means if a wholesaler sells a bottle of wine for $10, a liquor store would charge $18.85 for the bottle instead of $18.80. There's also an incremental tax increase on beer over the next four years. Clayson says consumers would pay one to three cents more for grocery store beer. The increased tax on beer would also help fund three new compliance officers.
4: Those three employees will fall under DPS, public safety. Those will not be my employees. Of course, we will work really collaboratively and really in tight
3: partnership the bill passed through the utah house earlier this week and is now in the senate utah's legislative session ends march 1st christine weller kpcw news
0: you're listening to the local news hour. This is Roger Goldman. Coming up, we're going to be speaking with Summit County Council Chair Melina Stevens about last night's council meeting. Then we'll be chatting with Kristen Schultz and Michelle Downard with an update on the status of the Park City Child Care Scholarship Program. We'll finish our hour by speaking with KPCW to President and General Manager Renee Bodley and Development Director Sarah Irvin about next week's pledge drive. Also, coming up this morning here on KPCW during our public affairs hour, Cool Science Radio will uh, we'll, we'll feature um, longtime national public radio science correspondent Neil Green, Nell Greenfield Boyce, who's gonna discuss her new book about the intersection of life and science. It's called Transient and Strange. Then Lisa Thompson, an exhibit developer and interpretive planner at the Natural History Museum of Utah will join to share her new book called Wild Wasatch Front. It's an urban nature guide. That's Cool Science Radio this morning, starting at nine o'clock. The Summit County Council held its regular meeting last night. On the phone with the debrief is Council Chair Melina Stevens. Good morning, Melina. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Melina, the legislative session ends tomorrow. I know that there was a legislative update. What did you learn?
5: Well, it's pretty fast and furious right now, as (laughs) it always is this time of year. The last last week of the session, or the last couple of weeks in particular, there are additional bills that are dropped, um, some of which we may have heard rumors about, some of which may be new. Also, some of the bigger bills are dropped, such as land use uh, omnibus bills. And so that, that has come out in the last couple of weeks, has been modified to include counties, which has some concern for us, as well as some problematic language that contradicts um, some other statutory obligation that counties have as far as recording plats and other, um, other deed restrictions against a deed. Um, We have quite a few concerns about that bill. We also have uh, concerns about residential building inspection amendments with SB 185. This would allow developers or people that are requiring a building um, inspection to be able to go out and get their own inspector and then the county is obligated to accept that inspection and also pay for it. So we have some concerns <laughs> with that. When you when you take government out of, of things that are pertinent to um, health, safety and welfare, it's pretty problematic because that's what we are really good at as government is making sure that things are safe for both the current residents and subsequent residents. And when we're taken out or our hands are tied, it, it could create some issues there.
0: You know, one of the big picture questions that I had for you is: Are we seeing a, a, the continuation of a tendency for the legislature to think about removing powers from local governments and land use in particular, uh, and, and and taking them back to the state level or or pushing them out to the private sector? It sounds like that's continuing to be an issue.
6: Yes, it
5: continues to be an issue. It's something that both we and the Utah Association of Counties and um, the league of cities and towns is really cognizant of because there is this constant whittling away of local control and the ability of counties and cities to be able to govern themselves according to their unique needs and desires and thoughts on what they would like right there are many things within summit county and park city and colville and oakley and all of our cities that there are policies that are different because we have different communities even here, let alone we start talking about San Pee County and San Juan County and Salt Lake County. So it's really important a government is best when it's closer to the people and people can have more influence and more say in how they're being governed. And so we do have, we have a lot of concerns with that continuing to be whittled away, whether in in small, you know, slow and steady small ways or in some of the larger ways that uh, the the legislature has tried to and
0: continues to try to. My, my understanding is one bill that uh, is, would have positive implications for the city is HP 236, the sales and use tax modifications. Can you explain what that is and why it would be helpful?
5: So this would allow, there was a bill passed, I believe last session, it could have been the session before that would allow counties to institute a rural hospitals tax that could be used, and this is fourth or sixth class counties. There were some nuances about um, whether parks, whether Summit County and, and this area would also be included as the how because of how it was defined. So this would be an expansion to the rural hospital tax bills that could would then absolutely, according to the language that's currently in there, be applicable to Summit County would allow an additional tax revenue source and sales tax that could then be used to fund things like EMS or search and rescue or those sorts of of services that are largely in our county impacts of tourism. We have with our search and rescue the vast, vast majority of people that are utilizing that service are not from within the county. And even with our EMS, we have a large portion of people that are out of county utilizing that service. So, looking at how we can diversify the funding sources for that.
0: So that would be a, a positive. Dilemma. On the flip side, <clears throat> I understand that the transient room tax expansion uh, 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 uses, the, I'm sorry, a bill that would allow an expansion of the uses of the transient room tax is not likely to pass. Can, can you sort of explain what that one would have done for us?
5: So right now there's transient room tax. So anytime somebody stays in one of our hotels, there's a tax that goes. Um, specifically, it, it's broken up a little bit. It goes towards marketing of this area as well as Um, allowing for building of, you know, amenities, physical amenities, such as it can be used for land, for trails, for um, a conference center, for something that's brick and mortars, that's an amenity to the community. This bill would be, would allow for a portion of that money to be used, again, to mitigate some of the impacts, such as EMS and search and rescue, um, potentially solid waste, some of these other impacts that we see from tourism so that is an effort that the county has been working on with many partners to try to determine how can we how can we again spread that tax burden over a broader group of people to include our visitors that are having impacts in those areas so again i if that bill is Unlikely to pass at this point, but it is an ongoing conversation that we, as a county, are having to to try to determine how we can how we can better spread that tax burden.
0: Okay. Well, I'm confident you didn't expect to get through this interview without us talking a little bit about Dakota Pacific. My, my understanding is that the council had asked for 500 units of housing, and now we have a proposal that brings it down from 727 to 695 from the developer. Do you see a path forward where people can get to an agreement on this or are we uh, getting close to a standoff?
5: So right now in our last meeting when it was presented the amended version of Dakota Pacific's plan, we had asked for uh, a pro forma and more understanding of the financial impact of affordable housing on their project. There's been a lot of conversations surrounding um, what does and does not pencil within the project. And we, as a council, asked, well, we would really like to see what the numbers are so that we can have an understanding of what what that means. So we are in process now of working with a consultant um, to get all of that information to synthesized so that we can then analyze that and, and look at that, look at the, the data to understand uh, what, what could FEASIBLY WORK FINANCIALLY, WHAT DOESN'T WORK FINANCIALLY, SO THAT WE CAN COME BACK WITH MORE INFORMATION TO CONTINUE THE ONGOING NEGOTIATIONS.
0: SO, so TO SIMPLIFY IT, for, for, FOR THOSE OF US WHO ARE not, NOT REAL ESTATE EXPERTS, THEY'VE COME IN AND SAID, LOOK, THIS IS WHAT WE CAN DO, AND HAVE THE NUMBERS MAKE SENSE TO GIVE US A REALISTIC AND FAIR RATE OF RETURN, AND WHAT YOU GUYS NEED TO DO NOW IS SAY, OKAY, WE SEE WHAT YOU'RE SAYING, WE SEE THE AFFORDABLE HOUSING NUMBERS, WE SEE THE MARKET RATE NUMBERS, uh, CAN WE SEE that?" you know, can we see that that makes sense? Or do you want to push again saying, look, we need to do a little bit more. Have I got that basically right?
5: Exactly. It allows us, I mean, information allows us to to better negotiate and to, if something, if we're able to get to something that um, we can have a public hearing on and elicit feedback, if there's some sort of negotiation that looks like it might work, which I don't think we're quite there at this point, obviously, but uh, Having that information is going to allow us to figure out what might be a better project. I I I think ultimately figuring out how something could be a benefit to the community is the only way forward for this project. I
0: I have this vision of complicated multi-cell spreadsheets where all kinds of different factors are being, being handled to try to come up with some kind of analytical framework and I can see why you guys had to bring in a consultant
5: absolutely we we are not the experts in that area and so we we will hire experts so that we can get the the information synthesized in a way that can be consumable for us and for the public
0: can we talk about the interplay between the dakota pacific project and the kimball junction redevelopment issue i i know i understand this week the udot uh sort of eliminated the what i call the sunken road option uh for 224 which would have lowered it at the junction um let me ask you this was that in many ways that looked like to me, the most efficient option. Do you have any sense as to why UDOT took it off the table and were you guys part of that decision-making process?
5: We, we were not necessarily part of that decision-making process. UDOT has come and presented before us uh, several on several occasions and has been working with staff. So we are absolutely partners in this and involved. My understanding as far as why the option B was removed at this juncture was because the footprint, um, in order to get all of the the turn lanes and all of, the, all of the infrastructure for what would need to be there was such a broad footprint. Mm. It was having environmental impacts um, and also would have been a huge sea of concrete. And so it, it not only was the most expensive, but also had some concerns both with environment and there was um, also some concerns with pedestrian access because there would be crossing multiple roads to get from east to west or vice versa. And so I think for a variety of reasons, that was taken off the table. Right now with Plans A and C, it's, we're, we're still in this process, nothing has been decided, and it could come out that there's some sort of combination of the two that makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. Um, by no means is this done, this is just the natural course of how, how UDOT has to go through projects when they're evaluating them.
0: And can you sort of explain how that the interplay between that project and the Dakota Pacific project? And my understanding is there was some notion that the county and Dakota Pacific might be lobbying together with you, Dad, assuming that you can come to some kind of uh, agreement moving forward with Pas- Dakota Pacific.
5: So we've had discussions within our our public meetings. Um, it is both in our intra- best interest and in Dakota Pacific's best interest for two twenty four to be fixed right now with with where the traffic is that's not going to have (laughs) in their words um, a positive impact on their project and we know both from our own experience and from feedback from the public and you know just driving on 224 um, most days that there are heavy concerns right now so that is something that we have been heavily lobbying for and will continue to over the course of the next um you know several years so that we can get that in a spot where where, where it is fixed, where it is a benefit to the community.
0: Melinda, before we go, I really want to uh, take take a minute to touch on the tribute to retiring pro- pro- prosecutor Patricia Cassell. Uh, the proclamation itself was not the kind of thing I would have really expected to see out of the county. It was pretty funny. Um, first of all, who wrote that?
5: Well, first of all, thank you for asking. Trish is is a fantastic prosecutor, but also an amazing person, and it was our Honor to be able to uh, read and and hold that moment and that space for her. Yesterday, she the proclamation. My understanding it was a collaboration within the county attorney's office.
0: It sounded like and Margaret.
5: <laughs> it, it was it was Margaret and team, from what I understand, um, because they we, we have a high functioning county attorney's office that are individually extremely talented, collectively. Um, Just an incredible team that has done some amazing work, both uh, in our civil and our criminal divisions. And I've personally, as a victim advocate, worked with Trish. Um, I worked with her for many years when I was in that position. And she is one of the most talented prosecutors I've ever worked with. She has the heart for it. She has the mind for it. She deeply cares about both the cases, the county, and the individual people that she's working for, and she will be greatly, greatly missed um, within that role. But I'm sure sure she'll still be around being involved in other things because that's who she is, but she will be missed in this position.
0: Is there any concern about whether her departure will affect ongoing prosecutions such as that very high-profile Richens case?
5: you know i i think margaret has that handled will there be a transitionary period absolutely can trish be fully replaced uh, i mean any, anyone that comes in is going to have a learning curve and be caught up to speed is that going to negatively impact the cases that are currently within the county attorney's office i do not think so because i know that they are very collaborative with how they approach all of their cases and so any case that trish has been working on even if she's been point that There are other people within the office also working on that, and knowing Trish also, Trish, as she has been preparing to retire, has been doing everything that she can to set up the office to succeed and to continue to succeed with all of those cases. So I don't have any concerns with ongoing cases and prosecutions because I know that the county attorney's office has that covered.
0: Okay, Melina, anything else you want to touch on before we go?
5: Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to speak today and appreciate all of the staff that has been working their tails off this legislative session. Um, Also our partners, we have many partners within the community that have been working hard to try to find pathways through challenging situations with legislation so that they can provide benefit to the community or at least Um, not have negative consequences. So thank you to everyone within the community and especially the Summit County staff who have been working on that for the last month and a half.
0: Thanks for taking the time with us. We'll be right back after this. The Park City Child Care Scholarship Program was launched on January 1st, 2024. Here with an update on the status of the program, are Kristen Schultz, Director of the Early Childhood Alliance, and Michelle Downard, Park City Resident Advocate. Good morning and thanks for joining us. Good morning. Happy happy Leap Day. Kristen, can we start with a little background, uh, sort of set the stage for how we got to this problem in terms of sort of the changes in uh, funding from various federal programs?
7: Yeah, thank you. So, childcare as an industry is um, incredibly important for our community, certainly for our parents with young children, but also for the community overall. And because of the structural inequities in the economic system that supports childcare. Throughout the nation and here in our community, it's very difficult for lower income families and middle income families to afford high quality child care. So during the pandemic, um, it became very obvious that people were really struggling with childcare and there were several rounds of COVID related federal funding to support the childcare industry. So here in our community in the 2022 calendar year, we received over two and a half million dollars that supported our childcare industry. Now those COVID funds are coming to an end and so all of the economic inequities are just frankly being exacerbated now because the COVID funds are leaving and so several members of our community brought this to the attention of the Park City City Council in the past 12 months and I'm really really thankful and really proud that the Park City Council saw this as an issue that was important to our community and decided that they wanted to be part of the solution.
0: So why was it important for the city to step up and in what form did the, does this and what, what is the structure of the scholarship program?
6: So there was considerable debate with council and we had quite a bit of public comments. Um, And based off of everything that Kristen has gone over with the lack of affordable and available childcare in Park City, uh, council decided to allocate $1 million towards this scholarship program. And we appreciate everyone's help in making sure that they spread the word and encourage everybody to apply.
0: Who is eligible to participate in the scholarship program?
6: So, Park City residents and workforce who meet the household income eligibility limits and have children that are pre kindergarten age. Uh, and so they would be turning five around September 2nd of the year.
0: Now, broadly speaking, we talked about income limits. Uh, I want you to sort of flesh that out a little bit. But is it a sliding scale of the amount of subsidy that people are eligible for? Or if you cross the limit, is there a fixed amount? I don't so know if I, does that make sense?
6: Yeah, it does make sense. And so um, first and foremost, the families will, should expect to contribute 10% of their household income towards the cost of child care. And then the scholarship calculation would be based off of that and combined with the cost of care.
0: Okay. And uh, how are things going so far? I mean, you have a million dollars. Uh, half of me was expecting you to tell me it was all gone already. Uh, but are you getting a good response? And, and where are you relative to that million-dollar uh, cap?
6: Sure. We're very pleased with the response that we've received so far. Uh, We have uh, received 130 applications and we've onboarded and have 12 actively participating child care providers.
0: Okay. And again, going to uh, trying to understand, is the million dollars enough to meet the need? I'm trying to get a sense of you had hundred and some odd applications. If all of those are granted and you run the numbers, where's that going to have you end up relative to that million?
6: So the forecast right now is that we will not uh, need to request any additional funding from the council, at least within the next Mm Fiscal year we do anticipate that the funds uh, hopefully will stretch a little bit longer Um, but that being said you know we're really early in the program we are still promoting it and as time goes on we are receiving more applications and so we do want to stress that it's first come first serve
0: is is there a calendar year uh, 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 implication of this such that because it starts in January is there a natural flow where these things tend to peak in the fall as the school year starts and therefore that you might not be seeing a, a totally sort of accurate picture of what the need you know what the response is
6: we do anticipate a little bit of a drop-off as uh, some of these children actually reach the kindergarten eligibility age and enter the school system Um, but we also anticipate you know a consistent onboarding as children are born (laughs) (laughs) and so um, I think there will be a natural cycle that way
0: Kristen when when this program was originally being discussed Childcare care subsidies, direct scholarships, was only one of several efforts that were going to be undertaken. Can you sort of remind our audience of what those other efforts are? I believe one of them was to try to increase supply. There are other things. Can you tell us about those other efforts and where those stand?
7: Yeah, so I think we're still very interested in basically two goals, right? We want to make it affordable and accessible for families, and we also want to support the providers overall. It's very difficult to recover the costs of care of providing high-quality education at a tuition price that families can afford. And so we want to support the providers, you know, some of these early care and education teachers are doing incredibly important, fantastic work. And frankly, we don't pay them very well or offer them benefits. And so we do need to look at kind of both sides of the puzzle, what the families are paying and also what the teachers and the providers um, are being paid themselves. So one of the things that's in the park city program um, that is not a child care scholarship is a provider incentive. So the state has federal funds available that are uh, provided by the Department of Workforce Services as a subsidy. So for our Summit County providers who are providing care to the families who receive that subsidy, who are on the lower part of our income range, there's a $300 per month per child uh, provider incentive to basically make it, you know, thank the providers for serving our vulnerable families and also to make it more economically feasible for them to do so.
0: Okay. I'm, I'm sort of sitting here. Sorry. Doing, I probably no, no, didn't explain that very well. You did. And I'm, I'm doing the numbers. So, so what's happening is the, you look at their sort of retail sticker price, mm-hmm. right? They get a subsidy that tries to get it to where the um, family with the 10% of their monthly income pays what they can pay. Then on the other side, to facilitate supply, you're adding a subsidy on top of that directly to the provider on a per child basis. Has that had the desired effect, which one of the things that I know you were trying to achieve was to increase the number of licensed providers in the county? Have you seen, have you seen some new ones come online?
7: So we have and i i can't say that it's directly caused to this or you know causal out of this um but so colville has a new center that's on main street and then there's also a new center that is going to be opening up in the area um on the other side of kimball junction on the other side of 80. i forget what that area is called like bitner road over on that side so we do have some new providers coming i also i do want to say though i think a lot of people you know the million dollars was put in the budget last summer But it's taken a while, right? We had to have an RFP to um, select the provider. The council wanted to kind of tweak the uh, parameters of the program. So that wasn't finalized until the end of November. So this program actually just opened up on January 1st. And when I say opened up on January 1st, that means both where we need families to apply and we need the providers to get into the system. So there's still several providers that are in process that aren't, you know, onboarded yet. So while we're very pleased with how the program has gone so far, I think we really only have two months and the first two months of standing up a new program. So I think it's a little early to really, Effectively review it, but um, we definitely are proud of the way things are going and we definitely want to encourage families to apply I think there's a lot of families out there who may not realize that this is something that could benefit their family And one other thing I wanted to mention was the AMI limits are updated every year typically in April So for families out there if you're looking at the AMI categories and you're slightly over I would go ahead and apply because in April when the new numbers come out, it is likely that they will go up and so it's likely that a few more families will be eligible uh, in the coming months. Uh,
0: Again, when we first started, when these issues were first being talked about extensively last year, one of the issues was the total supply within the county. Uh, Where do we stand with respect to the total supply of, of child care slots as against the total need? So,
7: based on the estimates, and again, I always want to thank Jeff Jones for helping with the child care needs assessment that we did last year, but if we're looking just at the under kindergarten eligibility um, range, we think there's about another 400 slots that our community needs.
0: Okay. And another part of the effort um, uh, that you talked about last year was uh, getting other stakeholders to come to the table. Um, The county, possibly business, where do those efforts stand?
7: Well, so the county also included money in their budget. They have $150,000 that they are going to use to support the county workforce, and then an additional $130,000 that is for the community at large. And I think the county staff right now is, you know, investigating options to try to figure out, you know, how can they make the best use of those funds. But the county did also come to the table.
0: So they've, they've come up with funds, but it's not clear. They haven't established a clear scholarship program or a supplier subsidy program or anything that is specific at this point. Correct.
7: And I hope once they decide how they want to do it, that you'll have them uh, on as well we to talk about their have
0: <laughs> uh, What about business? Um, I know that uh, there was, there was I think, some, some conversations with the chamber and other sort of the large businesses in town? Where do those efforts stay?
7: Yeah, so we are going to convene a a work group or task force, um, and we're hoping to set up that meeting in March. Um, The chamber has been very interested in this uh, issue in the past, and I hope that they would participate in the workforce. Um, There is a little bit of a philosophical question as to, you know, similar to health insurance and some other perks. You know, if you see this only as a function of work support, um there is no reason to have high quality child care if you're not looking at the development of the children and the benefits that it has for the child having a cheap place for children to be only so that their parents can work um sometimes gets a little bit um it, sometimes you can have that be at odds with what we are looking for in terms of seeing this as a public good that supports our community overall it also has some um, negative impacts in terms of job lock And typically it tends to be the highest income workers that receive those benefits for uh, those employers who do provide childcare. So I do think employers have a role. In my mind, I would like to see employers um, really come and advocate uh, for public funds and that this is a public good, because I think ultimately that gets to a much more efficient, fair and high quality system.
0: And and again, one of the other issues that was was talked about about bringing uh, providers into the license space was QUALITY CONTROL, HOW DO YOU, I MEAN, IT'S ONE THING, YOU you SEE EXTREMES WHERE ESSENTIALLY, YOU KNOW, PRIVATE HOMES ARE OPEN TO CHILD CARE AND IT IS PARKING, FOR LACK OF A BETTER TERM. WHAT EFFORTS are are, are ARE YOU DOING TO ENSURE THAT THE SCHOLARSHIP RECIPIENTS ARE GOING TO FACILITIES THAT WILL OFFER NOT MERELY A CHILD CARE EXPERIENCE, BUT A QUALITY CHILD CARE EXPERIENCE?
7: So in order to participate in Park City's program, you do need to be regulated. So that could be a home-based provider, a center-based provider. You can actually get certified as a family, friend, and neighbor provider. But, Roger, to your point, then, there is someone, there is a level of oversight. There are criminal background checks. There are inspections of the home. There are um, units training. Staff ratios. Staff ratios. All of the things that we know lead to high quality are included, right, as you look at the regulations for being a regulated provider. Okay.
0: Uh, We once again remind people of how to apply and and where, where to go to the website and make sure that they have access.
6: Sure so if anybody believes that they may be available uh, eligible to apply for the scholarship program uh, visit the Park City Community Foundation's website they have been an invaluable partner and we really appreciate there are FAQs an income calculator and a list of all the required documents in order to apply for the program there again we encourage uh, both families and then child care providers to go to the website and on board. Michelle,
0: are there multi-language options available for people who want to get information in Spanish?
6: Yes, yes. So our administrator has made sure that we have uh, multiple languages available to anyone who wants to call the number that's listed on that website. Okay. Thanks for spending time with us. We'll be right back after this.
0: So you hear that music, keep it coming on if you're listening to KPCW this week. And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is it's time for the annual Winter Pledge Drive. Here to talk about it, our Sarah Irvin, our Development Director. And our president and general manager, Renee Bodley. Good morning, and thanks for joining me. Good Good morning, morning. Roger. Okay, so why do we have to do this pledge drive stuff anyway? Sarah? (laughs) Well,
8: (laughs) the pledge drives are actually our biggest fundraisers of the year uh, when it comes to individual times of giving. So we do our pledge drives every year in March, first week of March, and roughly the third week of August. And unlike other radio stations around the country that hold these drives, Sometimes three, four, five times a year, and it's their same voices asking for money over and over again. And you kind of tune out if you've ever listened to public radio stations in larger markets. It's like that's the week when I think, okay, I've given my gift and I'm turning off this station. Here, we really try to make it inclusive of the entire community and really fun. Um, we have found that the model we've created is. Uh, It's a lot of work, I'll be honest, but it's really a lot of fun. We bring in voices from around the community, dozens of nonprofits and sponsors who join us throughout the week to talk about how they value KPCW and how KPCW is a partner to them throughout the year and help us fundraise for the station.
0: That really is a a unique model. Have Have you seen any other public radio station do anything like this, Renee?
9: I really haven't. There are um, some like KUER down in Salt Lake. They sometimes partner with a nonprofit like um, for any donation that's given on a certain day of their pledge drive, they'll give a percentage to another nonprofit in, in the Salt Lake Valley. So it, it's sort of the same spirit, you know, nonprofits helping other nonprofits. That's what it's all about in public broadcasting.
0: And what's, our, what's your goal for this year, Sarah? Well,
8: last year we raised nearly $280,000 during our winter pledge drive and every year we try to exceed what we did the year before. So that's certainly our monetary goal and what we've looked at is we sort of have tapered out every year at somewhere around 850 to 900 unique donors last year. Uh, DURING THE WINTER PLEDGE DRIVE WE HAD 924 UNIQUE DONORS SO WHAT WE'RE PUTTING OUT INTO THE UNIVERSE THIS YEAR IS THAT WE'D REALLY LOVE TO HIT 1000 UNIQUE DONORS THAT'S um, WHEN YOU CONSIDER THE COMBINED FULL TIME POPULATION OF SUMMIT AND Wasatch COUNTIES WHICH IS OUR BROADCAST AREA WE'VE GOT about 80,000 residents full-time residents so to get to 1000 unique donors that means just 1.25 percent of full-time residents Uh, and that doesn't even include the hundreds of thousands of seasonal visitors who visit here every year many of whom and i mean many many uh listen to us back in their hometowns and tell us that kpcw feels more like a hometown radio station than than the public radio station back where they live so that a thousand unique donors, if you're if you're listening out there and you're thinking, huh, I've never participated in the pledge drive, now's your chance. So,
0: so are we going to have two leaderboards next week where we, where
9: we have uh, dollars on one side and unique donors on the other? I just heard John Burdick groan out there <laughs> when you said two leaderboards. Bill, I think you, you kind of shuddered <laughs> a little bit as well. We can do it. I think that's a lot of fun to try to get new people um, to donate to the station. Traditionally in the public radio world, and this is nationally, this is a number that we get from NPR, only 10% of people who listen to public radio actually donate. And I think we can do better than that in our community. So I, I challenge anyone out there who listens to KPCW, who enjoys our content, whether it's the local news, whether it's our great public affairs shows, or maybe they really dig the music that we play, Every day, um, consider what that's worth to you. You know, if you give, you break it down. If you give a hundred dollars, that's less than Netflix.
8: I mean, I think it's about eight dollars and thirty-three cents a month. Eight
9: dollars and thirty-three cents a month. definitely
8: costs more than that. So does Spotify Premium. I mean, all of these services that people use, uh, we're here for you. You know, three hundred and sixty-five days a year for free.
9: Well, let's talk about. Spotify, because I hear so many people, especially younger folks who say, you know, I have my Pandora, I have my Spotify. We have such a great programming department that stays on top of what's new in the music world. And, you know, commercial radio stations, they play a certain genre and they play the same songs over and over again. And it really is through public radio that a lot of new artists are recognized and gain momentum. And I want to give a shout-out to Christy Delaway. Every week she sends us fresh tracks for Friday, and we feature new artists at the top of every hour. Sarah, you're on Friday mornings at 9 a.m., and I know (laughs) you and I are usually texting or talking about, all right, did we like that one? And it's usually a thumbs-up. It's rare that Christy has a swing and a miss
8: yeah it's true it's and it's so fun to be playing these new songs in the kpcw library and then later on exploring that artist further and i add them i mean i'll be the first to admit i have spotify i make my own playlist that i listen to um and uh but in the mornings and in the afternoons um i think there's no better way to feel connected to this community than listening to kpcw certainly for the music but also for the local news i was thinking about it on the way in listening to roger your interview with molina the number of times that we have local elected officials on our airwaves is um, I think really unique in in the public radio world um, we've got you know city council members county council members city manager county manager numerous times per week um, it's incredible the amount of local news that we provide and that's just on local elected officials um, not to mention the news stories that are team is covering day in
0: and day out Renee, let's put that into a broader context I mean the importance of local news in terms of getting government to be responsive and transparent and what we've seen across the country
9: is sort of the death of the local newsroom and we are standing up tall yeah Um, the death of the local newsroom um, is not a great story you know what we're seeing are a lot of hedge funds by local newspapers they are in it to you know trim costs and it's all about the bottom line and journalism takes a lot of time takes a lot of effort um journalists tend to be greatly underpaid for the service that they provide their communities um and a lot of blame frankly goes towards media outlets because they're not staying where the customer wants them to be. They're not evolving where the customer is. We've tried really hard to do that by going online with all of our stories, by putting out that daily email newsletter, The Local. If you're not one of the 6,000 people who get that every day in your email inbox, you can sign up at kpcw.org. On the right side of the screen, there's a logo that says The Local. That's really imperative, Roger, and that's what we're trying to do. You know, we talk to our reporters about getting the story on the air. That's really important, especially in times of public safety issues, you know, winter weather advisories or power outages or traffic backups. We want to get that news out over the air. But it's also critical to get that story out online, get it on the website push it out on our social media channels. That's how you're getting more and more of your audience engaged and most importantly, informed with professional journalism, fact-based objective stories, not just somebody's opinion or conspiracy theory that you might read on your social media page.
0: So every week there are commission meetings, there are council meetings, and every week we send people to cover those. And it takes hours. And we have to send multiple people to multiple locations. And if we're going to have have the people at uh, the headcount to send people, it takes money. Talk to us a little bit about what it takes to run the station
9: and why it is that we have to spend money on all these journalists. Thank you. The, our most expensive, costly asset are our people. It costs $2.3 million to run this radio station. That's a lot of money for a radio station this size. As everyone out there knows, this is an expensive place to live. It's an expensive place to do business. We want to pay our employees a livable wage. Right now in our newsroom, we added two headcount this past year. We added Sydney Weaver as a producer. We added added Christine Weller, she's a general assignment reporter that goes along with Connor Thomas, who's Summit County, Parker Malatesta, who's Park City, Grace Dorfler, who's Wasatch County, Ashton Edwards, our news director, and cannot forget the amazing Leslie Thatcher, right? That's a seven person news department. That's more than some statewide news organizations. That's because this community has recognized the importance of local news and has decided to invest in local journalism and public radio. We are so lucky to have that, and this is the time to donate if you never have before. Okay, we got $2.3 million. Where does our money come from?
8: Well, again, a big chunk of that comes from our... Um Biannual pledge drives. We also receive certainly um, funding from various grant sources, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, uh, a Summit County RAP grant uh, through their Arts and Cultural RAP program, and others. But our biannual pledge drives account for more than twenty-five percent of our operating budget. I should also mention that our major donor program, our Broadcasters Club, is a significant um, portion of of our budget. Um, we have 350 members of our broadcasters club. That is a program that starts at $1,000 per year um, and these members get invited to um, a number of different events throughout the year. It's a great way to get to know other folks around town and know that you're supporting the station in a very meaningful way. Um, our, our broadcasters club members are longtime locals or folks who have just moved here and are looking for a way to get involved.
9: The Broadcasters Club brings in about $600,000 a year for the station. It's huge. So a big shout out to everyone who's joined the club. Thank you so much. And if you want to join, um, you can join during our pledge drive or you can join online right now at kpcw.org.
0: So we spend money on reporters. We also spend money on programming. Um, We also spend money on the public affairs shows. Can Can you sort of flesh out a little bit about those?
8: Sure. Our public affairs shows air Monday through Thursday morning at 9 a.m. We've got Mountain Money, of course, on Monday mornings. Uh, An outstanding program. Outstanding. <laughs> incredible <laughs> incredible host, really. <laughs> um, this Green Earth, which is our environmentally focused show on Tuesday mornings. The Mountain Life focused on healthy living and um, on Wednesday mornings. Cool Science Radio, my per- person, No, I won't say that, Rod. <laughs> <laughs> but I just love the way they break down these heavy scientific topics into a way that I can enjoy and, and they appreciate. they all these cool
0: guests. Such they, uh, cool they, uh, guests. They Cool NASA Science people. Radio. I, I swear, uh, one of these days are going to get somebody to talk to us from the moon. I know.
8: I, I, <laughs> well, the, we did. We, we had did. the International Space Station. A live broc- That was incredible. <laughs> we had a broadcast live broadcast from space.
0: Yeah, from outer space.
8: And then I can't forget Rich Tones Curated Jazz, which airs every Friday and Saturday evening. Thank you to Rich Rector, who produces that show. Our public affairs and cultural shows, they cost us about um, $75,000 per year. So if you tune into those shows Uh, every week you know consider that a reason to contribute as well
0: okay so we got we have many hours next week uh, that we they were filling and one of the nice things is we only do it for a few days we don't do it all five days we don't we we, want to get this you know done in a compact and efficient way but one of the fun things is that during every hour Sarah has found a not-for-profit that will be coming in to the studio to talk about what they do and how KPCW helps them Uh, it's a unique model um, talk to us a little bit about some of the people that we're going to see and what the nonprofit gets for helping to support KPCW.
8: Sure, yes. Like I mentioned earlier, we have about a dozen nonprofits who join us during the winter drive, another dozen who join us during the summer drive. Um, and you can check out the full schedule online right now, kpcw.org and click that winter pledge drive banner Um, we've got for instance Kimball Art Center kicking things off after the news team kicks things off Monday morning at 8 Kimball Art Center will be in here Monday morning at 9 people's health clinic we've got friends of ski mountain mining history we've got the Park City Community Foundation's climate fund they're a their first time participant with us this year Um, friends of Summit County search and rescue the list goes on and on as far as the nonprofits who will be joining us go and one of the things that they uh, will receive for helping us fundraise here at KPCW is if they can um, if we can raise at least $5,000 during each of these hours those nonprofits will receive a uh, $4,000 free underwriting credit that's a hundred free spots of underwriting that they can use throughout the year here at KPCW to get the word out about their mission and programming so saves them critical marketing dollars that they can um you know reserve for other purposes and get that underwriting um, those radio spots that you hear here on our airwaves at kpcw
9: we're very lucky um to have some very generous sponsors for our pledge drive i want to give a shout out to our gold sponsors park city mountain and epic promise deer valley resort high star ranch promontory foundation and gallagher pediatrics those are our gold level sponsors huge shout out to them anyone listening if you think hey i want to be part of the pledge drive fund." reach out to Sarah, Sarah at kpcw.org. Um, we're already lining up people for our August pledge drive. <laughs> it's true. But I want to say there's a special hour, and that's for our beloved office manager, Ethel Preston, who is retiring. So on the last day of the pledge drive, next Thursday, March 7th at 4 o'clock, we are going to have an hour honoring Ethel. So please tune in. Send us a message that you want us to read over the air to Ethel. She is such a community jewel. We're really going to miss her.
0: Okay. Thanks, Renee. Thanks, Sarah. We'll be right back after this.